Good morning, everybody. So far, so good. We're having a great time, blessed time, and we're going to be doing a study of the end times for who knows how long. It's going to be a while before we get to the end of it. Hopefully, Jesus will come back while we're doing the the study, because we're going to be going through the book of Revelation. We are going to skip over chapters 1 through 3, because we're going to be doing those on a Friday night. So we're going to pick those apart for our Friday night Bible study, because they're a little bit different. But we get to the future aspect of the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 4. And so we are going to do a study of Revelation from chapter 4 on. And Jamie's tablet um, is giving us a little bit of trouble here. Shh, y'all, y'all. Shh. Okay, let's not make it worse. Okay. But anyways, we're going to be doing an overview for this Sunday and next Sunday about end times in general, because it's impossible to do a verse-by-verse study of Revelation without coming at it from a particular framework. Everybody's got a framework, okay? And I'm going to do my best to justify my framework, okay? Um, I have titled this series, Are We Living in the End Times? And it's an overview of dispensational, or more popularly known, left-behind eschatology. Eschatology is the theological grouping uh, for the end times. So if you want to know the precise theological term for the study of the end times, it's eschatology. I'm probably not going to use that term a lot more from here on out because it's a mouthful. But end times is generally a controversial subject. Sadly, it shouldn't be if we approach scripture with a literal viewpoint, just as we would interpret the book of Genesis literally and the rest of the Bible literally. Whenever it's giving us a narrative, we should interpret Revelation the same way. Yes, it does have signs. It does have ways of describing things using metaphorical language, figurative language. However, it is talking about events which are going to literally take place in the future. And so that's going to be the way that I approach the book of Revelation. But I also want to show everybody here and anybody who's listening that a long time ago in the early church, the way that I read the book of Revelation, literally, that was the standard way of doing so for a long time until things changed. And as we're going to look at the things that change, I think that we're all going to agree that they change for the worse and not for the better. And so we're going to do our best to justify the basic understanding of the end times that's represented in the books, the Left Behind series. So if you ever read the Left Behind series, it's what really made end times super popular in America. And of course, it's best selling in many other countries too, not just here in the US. And so somebody here listening from another country may even be familiar with Jerry, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. And so they teach a view of the end times called dispensational, as opposed to some other views that I'm going to introduce you to. But I think that that basic way of looking at the end times is correct. I can remember when I went to seminary, it was mocked. That the, uh, in, uh, what was it called? The left behind theology is what they called it. And they use that in a very derogatory sense. I'm using it in a positive sense because I think that they do a good job of representing the end times. Obviously, they have to use some artistic license. They're writing novels, their books, it's fiction. But the basic framework that underlies those books is very biblical. In fact, Tim LaHaye has got himself a doctorate. Okay, he's with the Lord today. He's graduated to heaven, but he received a doctorate in theology. And so he was a Bible scholar himself, wrote many books on this subject. 
So he wasn't a novelist. It was really Jerry Jenkins, I believe, who was more of the novelist. Uh, Tim LaHaye was more of the researcher. But uh, I'm going to show you how long before those guys came along, this was the way that people interpreted the Bible. And I think that uh, we have good reasons for believing a literal view of the end times. And if you're wondering exactly what that literal view is, that's why we're going to look at some definitions first off. So definitions. All right. The millennium is key to a study of the end times. Millennium refers to a thousand years. So there are three different views about 1,000 years that's going to follow Christ's return to earth. Hey, Jamie. Shh. How about you be quiet? We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the Bible. Okay? Be quiet now. And so for 1,000 years following Christ's return to earth, there is going to be a thousand years which precedes the new heaven and the new earth. And that is what a lot of people are not willing to accept. And that's probably the most controversial aspect of this type of end times view that I'm sharing with you. It's believed by many that I've talked to that whenever Jesus comes back, he ends everything pretty quickly and there's not going to be any transitionary period. So Jesus comes back, there's a resurrection, resurrection of the righteous, resurrection of the unrighteous. There is the new heaven and the new earth. There's the lake of fire. Bing, bada, boom, it's over. Like, that's literally how many people understand it. However, when you get to Revelation, you're going to find things are a little bit more messy. Okay, messy in the sense that it may not be as, as easy for us to understand because there's more detail. But the reason there's more detail is because God is giving us history before it happens. And I think we'd all agree that history can be pretty complicated. And so when God is writing down prophetically history through the prophets, not just John, but many others in the Old Testament as well, and Jesus himself in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, okay, he is giving us a historical sketch of the future before it has come to pass. So yes, there is a lot of detailed information there. It would be easier when we're teaching about the end times and explaining the Bible if it was Jesus comes back and it's all done. Heaven, hell, final judgment, it's over. But that's not the way the Bible depicts it. So there is 1,000 years between Jesus returning and the new heaven and the new earth, which that's also referred to as the eternal state. So once the new heaven and the new earth are established, there will be no more judgments. Okay, so once that final judgment takes place, the great white throne judgment, once the earth is restored and heaven is restored as well, okay, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Once that's done, there's no change in terms of the basics, the fundamentals. Okay, yes, we're going to have lots of different activities, but the basic state of things isn't going to change. So you're going to have that new heaven, new earth for all eternity. And there will be no other sins. There will be no other judgments. And it's going to be awesome, wonderful from then on out. However, this thousand year period is what caused so much controversy because a lot of people wonder, why is there a thousand years? Why is there this gap? Why doesn't Jesus just go ahead and judge immediately? Well, he's got his purposes as we're going to look at throughout this study. But first, we need to just understand the definition. So that's the millennium. Premillennialism says there's a literal millennium. So if you read in the book of Revelation, it says when Jesus comes back, he's going to reign with the saints for 1,000 years prior to the final judgment, prior to the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? So that's premillennialism, and that was the main view. In fact, as far as we know, the only view for the first 200 years of church history, and then some people start to speculate a little bit. So that's premillennialism. Amillennialism says there is no literal millennium. So the church reigns spiritually now. So Christ is reigning 
through the church right now. And the next step is the new heaven and the new earth. So if you're wondering when is the millennium coming, well, you're asking the wrong question because the millennium is already here. Satan is already bound now, which doesn't make any sense. And, and you'll see up front that I have very strong opinions about this because if you read the rest of the New Testament, it's very clear that Satan is roaring. He is wondering about seeking whom he may devour. Satan is not bound right now. So you have to be very fluid in your interpreting of Scripture. Uh, honestly, I think that it would be a dishonest way of handling Scripture to overhear say, oh, well, Satan is bound. Yes, he's bound, and, and he is incapable of deceiving the nations. But over here, it says that he's seeking whom he may devour, and he's actively trying to deceive people. So amillennialism has a little bit of a problem, but the way they avoid any inconsistency is by simply using a different form of interpreting Scripture. If you use a literal form of interpreting Scripture, you have a contradiction. You can't have Satan is bound and Satan is free. That's a contradiction. However, if you take that reference to Satan being bound and you make it spiritual, okay, allegorical, Satan is bound not in any literal sense. He's bound in a, a metaphorical sense, like he's been beaten by the cross, which is true, but that's not what John is saying when he says Satan's bound. He means literally Satan is bound when he says Satan's bound. And so that's amillennialism. It's quite popular among the Reformed community. There are some amillennial Baptists as well, but generally, among the Reformed community, it's pretty popular. Uh, a Reformed denomination would be Presbyterianism, for example. The post-millennial view, no, John, John MacArthur is Reformed in many ways, but no, he's premillennial all the way, and he's right in that aspect. Um, post-millennialism is the view that Christ returns after a millennium. So the millennium sometimes is defined in a literal sense, like it's literally a thousand years. Some people think that the millennium is really just a... Uh, an expression referring to an indefinite time period. So there's going to be a millennium in the future, but it hasn't happened yet. And that's where post-millennials and amillennials do disagree. A post-millennial will say the millennium hasn't happened yet. Now, if you ask them what exactly is the millennium, the most popular view I would say is the millennium is an age on earth. So it's a literal age. They may not go as far to say that it is literally 1,000 years in duration, but there's going to be this age where Christ is reigning spiritually in the church, but it hasn't happened yet. So that requires the church to essentially dominate the world in terms of government and media and culture. And so obviously we're not seeing that happen. Are we seeing any indication that we're heading in that direction? <coughs> None at all. And so post-millennialism is a very positive, you'd say it's a positive way of looking at reality, um, optimistic way of looking at reality. But I would say it doesn't line up with scripture and it doesn't line up with the way things are happening in the world today. But post-millennialism is becoming very popular and we'll continue talking about this more on Friday nights before we get to Revelation 1 through 3. We're continuing to talk about theocracy and healing. And so we kind of already talked about this a little bit, but we're going to discuss more about the post-millennial view because it's becoming extremely popular now. Amillennialism, I would say, is probably the minority at this point. Uh, the most vocal evangelicals are either premillennial or postmillennial. And the premillennialists are being portrayed as very negative, very pessimistic, because the premillennial view says, look, before you get Christ reigning on earth, there's a tribulation, and God's pouring out his judgment on earth. And why is he pouring out judgment? Because things are getting worse, they're not getting better. Mankind's not repenting. So that's a pessimistic outlook, many would say. And I would say it's what the Bible says. It, maybe it is pessimistic, but it's accurate. The post-millennial view says, no, Christ will reign if Christians are doing their job. 
So the millennium is conditional. It's not going to happen because Christ brings it in at a set time that he's ordained. The millennium will be brought in whenever we as the church are doing what we're supposed to be doing. So it also is based on this idea that revelation should not be interpreted literally. Um, it's very allegorical as well. That's what post-millennials and amillennials would have in common there. Um, but we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Let's move on. So those are the definitions, the main views. Now, the early church. What did the early church believe about this? And this is eye-opening for me because I've always wondered, is my belief about the end times, is it really just something that was made popular by people like Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye? Is this something that dates back no earlier than the late 1800s, as many people say, that John Nelson Darby is the guy who came up with all this stuff? No. These beliefs that dispensationalists hold today are very ancient. In fact, they are the most ancient of end time beliefs. So it all revolves around this guy called Augustine. Augustine really is the one who set the pace for the whole medieval period. So during the Dark Ages, Augustine's views were dominant. And in, in many ways, this is the case, but we're going to look at the end times in particular. We could talk about how Calvinism became very dominant because of Augustine, but we're not going to get into that. We're going to talk mainly about the, his view of the end times, but before Augustine, okay, and Augustine lived in the late 300s, early 400s AD, after Christ came. So before him, in the second century, we have people talking about the millennium as a literal reality, like the millennium will be set up. Israel will be restored. At this point, Israel is scattered to the wind. Okay, so this is after Revelation was written. Revelation was written after 70 AD, after the temple was destroyed. The Jews are scattered all over the world. But yet there were so many people saying that, no, the Jews will come back. Now, when that will happen, they don't know. No man knows the day or the hour, but God's going to restore his people Israel and he is going to set up his reign on earth and it will last a thousand years before there's that final judgment, before the eternal state. You have people like Barnabas teaching this. Some people dispute whether this was actual Barnabas. It's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, probably not. Okay, this is someone who's known as pseudo Barnabas. It could be a guy who is named Barnabas. Okay, I mean, uh, there could have been very well more than one person named Barnabas. Barnabas. <laughs> yeah, not not Barnabas Fife, but uh, uh, pseudo Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas in the second century talks about the millennium. Uh, Papias, who knew John. So this guy actually knew John the Apostle. Um, he believed in a literal millennium. Just That's pretty significant. Yeah, this is a guy who knew John. Uh, so Papias believes in a literal millennium. Uh, Justin Martyr was one of the first defenders of the Christian faith before Rome. So he actually spoke before uh, emperors. So a very famous person. He was a Samaritan who was a philosopher until he was shown the prophecies of the Old Testament and it convinced him. So that apologetic led him to faith. And he believed in a literal millennium and he actually had many dialogues with Jews at the time. So this is when Christians and Jews are still communicating. Later on, eventually, there's going to be a huge divide. Jews are over there, Christians are over here. We don't really associate with one another. But at this time in history, Christians were really trying to, to evangelize the Jews. They were really trying to take the Old Testament and use it as a bridge to lead them to Christ. So we see a lot of that in Justin Martyr's writing. When you said Jesus will set up his, 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 the Jews, he will bring back. He'll bring back the Jews. Yes. Is that, the the, what, what do you mean by that? So the Jews have been scattered for the past 2,000 years. And, 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 and since, here. yes, and since 1948, 
you know, they've been planted back in their promised land. That's a huge sign that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. And we're going to get to that chapter during the study. Okay. We probably won't get to it today, but we'll get to it hopefully next week. But Jesus promises that the fig tree that was cursed uh, is going to bud once again. Now that doesn't refer to spiritual revival yet. Okay. Budding just refers to the leaves coming back on the tree, but the fruit will be born later. So we're seeing the budding of the fig tree now. So Israel is a, uh, a political entity once again, but we're seeing evidence that Messianic movement is growing. It's, it's getting stronger. So we're starting to see some fruit, but we won't see the full-fledged revival of the Jews until after the rapture happens. Uh, but we're right there on the cups of it. That's why the rapture, I feel like, you know, obviously could happen anytime. But what makes me think that it's more imminent in a sense than ever, is we're seeing a lot of these signs converge that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. So Israel is going to be restored. They're not completely restored yet. They don't have all the land that God promised Abraham. They will. It's going to stretch from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, which is a lot more than they have now. And it won't be contested. Like this will be their land. They will rule over the nations. Christ will be a king on David's throne. And Israel will be the capital of the world. I mean, it's, they're depicted as a mountain. And all the nations are going to go up to this mountain. And uh, all of them are going to want the blessing of Israel. So Israel will be dominant. Like right now, you could point to certain nations, say these nations are dominant. Israel will be dominant in the millennium. They're not there yet. But again, we're seeing evidence that we're heading in that direction. So Israel is being gathered back to the land. But we don't have all the tribes gathered back in the land. Uh, the lost 10 tribes are prophesied as coming back. And you know, there's a lot of debate about the lost 10 tribes. Some people argue they've never really been lost. They just kind of got assimilated into different peoples. And there are peoples who live in certain countries that say I'm of this tribe and they probably are. Okay. If those traditions are reliable, a lot of these people probably are uh, part of those tribes. But again, they're very much scattered at this point, but they will be gathered back to their land, which itself will be enlarged in the end time. So we're, we're definitely seeing that the groundwork's being laid. Uh, when you have Israel scattered for 2000 years and then you know, after World War II, they're, they're coming back and they're becoming a powerful nation again. And they have a lot of people that want them gone, but yet they're, they're firmly planted in the land. To me, that's a strong sign that we're really close to the uh, kingdom being established. But again, we just got to wait and see. But uh, all of these people, Justin, Irenaeus, Melito. Melito was a Jew, so he was a Christian Jew. I love his stuff. He has the highest view of Jesus' deity. The way he describes it is beautiful. I'd really encourage you to look at it. Um, he has a sermon. Uh, about Easter, about Passover. And the way he depicts Jesus, like the one who cannot suffer is God, takes, takes on flesh so he can suffer. Um, the one who cannot be touched by pain um, succumbs to pain on the cross. The way he depicts it is just beautiful. He teaches both natures, Jesus is God and man, and it's so well done. So I'd encourage you to check out uh, his writings. Uh, Tertullian, he was a North African pastor. Um, he was a believer in a literal millennium. Hippolytus believed in a literal millennium. Methodius, Lactantius, like all these people, you notice like for the first 300 years, like this is the dominant view. Now, when did people starting to start to sow doubt that there was maybe a different way of reading Revelation? So until Augustine, the amillennial view was the minority one and it was most common among the heretics. So the idea that there would be a spiritual kingdom, not a, not a literal physical millennium, but there would be some spiritual kingdom that was common among the heretics, the Neoplatonists, they, they hated everything fleshly. They hated everything physical. They thought physical was bad. And so the idea of a millennium to a Neoplatonist was absolutely ridiculous. 
Um, but Augustine himself was a Neoplatonist, and many people have pointed out that some of the things that he changed his mind on tend to go back to his Neoplatonist background. So, for example, Neoplatonists believed, uh, as many pagans believed, in determinism. So the idea that God determines our fate, which is very Calvinistic. So he rejected that when he first became a Christian, but later in his life, he goes back to that view of God's sovereignty. Um, at first, Augustine was a premillennialist himself. But later in life, he goes back to this, this amillennial view that, again, was common among heretics, but among Christians was, was not the majority view at all. I mean, I can't find anybody for the first 300 years. There might have been uh, somebody out there. Uh, but as far as I know, the only two people in the first 300 years that taught something other than premillennialism was Clement and Origen. And uh, Clement and Origen, they introduced it using what's known as the Alexandrian approach to Scripture. There were two main approaches to interpreting Scripture. The Antiochian one, Antioch's in Syria, and Alexandria's in Egypt. And these were two uh, centers of learning, like biblical, theological study. And so in Antioch, their way of looking at Scripture was very literal. Okay, we're going to take it at face value. In Alexandria, there were a lot of cults there as well. So I can't help but wonder if that was the influence. But in Alexandria, they looked at Scripture with a, a more allegorical approach. And so this led to divergent opinions. So you have Clement and, and Origen. Uh, Origen was a student of Clement, uh, of his theology. But these guys introduced this belief that um, the kingdom, when it's established, is going to be a spiritual one. They didn't like the idea of a physical millennium. So the idea of you know a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth was rejected by them. Uh, and after Augustine, so he eventually picked up on Clement and Origen's view. So they kind of introduced that seed of doubt. Augustine really latched onto it, probably because of his Neoplatonist roots. But Augustine made that amillennial view the very, very most popular one among Christians at the time. And it dominated the Middle Ages until after the Reformation. So for the whole Middle Ages, I mean, there was a couple people here and there that did believe in a literal millennia, but not many. Okay, so these were the outliers. As far as we know, at least they didn't have writings that were published and popular. Okay, we can say that at, at most. But um, after the Reformation, the Puritans revived premillennialism. So these names may be familiar to you. Increase and Cotton Mather, some of, the, some of the most famous Puritans. Cotton Mather is probably one of the most famous. But these two guys in particular, they, they kind of brought back premillennialism and made it uh, popular once again. Uh, the Puritans were, you know, big writers. Hey, very influential writers, and so their views um, swayed a lot of people. And so we see premillennialism starting to kind of get its strength back after the Reformation. And that's not a coincidence either. The Reformation, guys, was about putting the Bible in the hands of the people and uh, letting people read the Bible apart from tradition, but letting God's Word speak for itself. Anybody can read the Bible. Even the plowman can read the Bible. That was William Tyndall's belief. And so after the Reformation, it's not a coincidence that people start going back to premillennialism because as they read their Bible, they see, hey, a thousand years. If God says it's a thousand years, it's going to be a thousand years. It's that simple. Okay, if God says it, that settles it. So we start to see this viewpoint return. Okay, but for a long time, Augustine's view was the only one that was considered acceptable among the medieval theologians. All right, now let's look at a couple more slides and then we'll wrap it up because, you know, we're all getting hungry. Um... What about the rapture? So we've been talking about the millennium. What about the rapture? So did they have any rapture views back then? It's believed by some, and they call themselves historic premillennialists. I think it's a misnomer, but that's what they call themselves. And they say that the rapture 
and the second coming of Christ are the exact same. So they would look at it this way. Before the millennium gets started, Jesus comes back right at the start of the millennium. And people who are alive at the time, the believers are changed. And the people who are dead at that time that are Christians, they're resurrected. And it all happens at one time. So there's not a gap between the millennium being started and the rapture, the, the catching up of the saints. And that's considered historic premillennialism because according to these people, that's what they believed back then. So when they believed in the premillennial view, they didn't believe in the left behind view like Tim LaHaye believed that there was a rapture, seven years of tribulation, and then the second coming. These ancients, they said, would believe that there was going to be seven years of tribulation, yes, and then Christ would come back. So it was all post-trib rapture, okay? So they would say that the post-trib rapture is the right one. However, there were some people that didn't seem to fall in line with that. There was a guy named Ephraim. Some call him Pseudo-Ephraim. Again, Pseudo means that this name is attached to this person, but they may not have actually been that person. Um, in fact, it was kind of, in a way, a strange honor you know, to use this name. If someone was really famous, then their name would be attached to certain writings to give it authority, to give it credence. Of course, it's lying, okay? However, what you look at it, right? But I mean, that was done. It was a practice among, among the ancients. And so Pseudo-Ephraim, or Ephraim, whichever, he wrote from this time period of uh, 374 to 627. So that's a long time period, right? But again, we don't know how to date this, okay? We don't know. If it's the actual Ephraim, then it would be in the 300s. Okay? If it's another guy writing, uh, writing later, then it would be as, as late as 627. The point is, this is during the medieval period when Augustine's amillennial view was really popular. So this guy doesn't teach that. He teaches something kind of weird. He believes in a pre-tribulation rapture or maybe a mid-tribulation one. It's kind of hard to tell exactly. Before the Antichrist persecutes Christians in the tribulation, there'll be a rapture. And so Christians are at least saved from the last three and a half years of the tribulation. That's what he taught. And there are many references to support this. But interestingly enough, he doesn't seem to believe in a, a literal millennium. He's kind of a weird hybrid. So he would say there's going to be a literal tribulation, seven years. At some point before the Antichrist rises to power and starts killing Christians. Jesus will come back and take those Christians out. At the end of that tribulation period, the Antichrist will be judged by God, thrown in the lake of fire, and then God's going to do everything at once. New heaven, new earth, everything. So it's like, they believed in a literal antichrist and a literal rapture and a literal tribulation, but apparently they didn't believe in a literal millennium. So it's kind of weird, but they would be what you might call a pre-tribulational amillennialist, which many people would say that's an oxymoron, but apparently there were some people back then who believed it, which is strange. But um, Irenaeus, who's a guy who didn't know John, but he knew a guy who knew John. So he was pretty close uh, to when Revelation was written. Uh, a Greek fragment of his writings does suggest a pre-trib rapture. So the Latin statement of Irenaeus doesn't really tell you exactly when he believed the rapture happened, but there's a Greek fragment that does support a pre-trib rapture. And lastly, uh, Eusebius, who was a well-known amillennialist who was like anti-premillennial, like he could not stand the idea of premillennial. And he admits that these people who taught that John believed that, He's like, they're wrong, they're wrong. That's not actually what the real John, you know, one of the disciples believed. And this is something that if you read his writings, you can tell he's super biased, okay? Uh, when, when, 
when was Eusebius? Eusebius was in the 300s. Okay, so before Augustine became really, really popular. He didn't know John, but he knows better than the people that. Yes, him. yeah. So he doesn't. He he's aware that these people are claiming that this pre-millennial stuff right. goes back to John, but he says they're wrong. And he came up with this idea that the John that they're talking about that taught a literal millennium isn't the John that we know about. It's a different John. Okay. It's not John the apostle. And so in his view, revelation was kind of like secondary. It was not as reliable as the other books. Revelation was written by actual John. No, he did. So, but again, that's because he had such a big problem with the premillennial view. Like he hated it. And it's because he was borrowing this idea from Origen and Clement. Like he, he was, he was part of that same school of thought. However, ironically, he does believe in a literal Antichrist, in a literal tribulation, and he thinks that before the Antichrist starts killing people, God is going to take the righteous and take them to the heavenly ark. This is exactly, this is, yeah, this is, a, <laughs> yeah, this is like a pre-trib rapture being taught right. by a guy who doesn't even believe in a millennium. It's like, what is going on in these people's minds? Like, they would take one portion of Revelation and say, oh, we think that's literal because they couldn't argue with Paul. Like, it's like right. no one contested Paul's writings. Like, they know he wrote these books. Okay, he couldn't say, oh, it was another Paul. And so when Paul talks about a literal Antichrist, Eusebius, 300 AD, he's saying Antichrist hasn't come yet. Okay, he will come. And before he starts persecuting people, the whole world's going to become atheist because of the Antichrist, according to Eusebius. And before that happens, Christ is going to take Christians out. So there's going to be a rapture. Okay, so whether it's three and a half years before the end or seven years before the end, it's not, you know, 100% clear, but there's going to be some kind of preacher rapture. And then when Christ comes back, he's not going to set up a thousand year reign. He's just going to go straight for the eternal state. So there apparently were amillennialist guys that tried to synthesize things a little bit. Like they would hold to an antichrist and a rapture, but they wouldn't believe in a thousand year reign. Um, but. That seems to be the references to the rapture among the church fathers. Um, I'm okay with the rapture and no millennial. Like, that's okay with me. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, like, it, you know, <laughs> at least they held on to the rapture part. Right. Like, yeah, like, that's, that's kind of important. We like that. Okay, we want that. That's our hope. That's the blessed hope. But anyways, uh, we'll talk more about the modern opposition because today um, a lot of these viewpoints that were being contested back then, like the arguments back then, they're still around. Okay, people are still debating this very same subject today, and uh, we're going to talk about the modern opposition on Sunday, next Sunday. So anyways, we'll stop there. Uh, there's a lot here. It's dense information, but I want to kind of give you background before we get into Revelation. We're going to go verse by verse through Revelation, but uh, ho hopefully this will be a blessing to you. For me, I'm excited that Jesus is going to come back soon. Going verse by verse through Matthew 24. Uh, we probably won't go through verse by verse through Matthew 24, okay? We will cover the highlights, though, okay? Everybody read it. Uh, but yeah, read that. Do some homework. But God bless. That's where we're going to wrap it up, and uh, we'll see you next time.